And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we're back with another episode of the Startup Hustle. This is your host today, Matt Watson. Very excited to be joined today by Ted Blosser from WorkRamp. His company has a learning management system. We're going to learn all about his business and uh, the trials and tribulations. Uh, he Before the episode, we were talking about some uh, really cool talking points today, so I'm on the edge of my seat to hear what he has to say. Before we get started, I do want to remind everybody that today's episode of Startup Hustle is powered by FullScale.io. Hiring software developers is difficult. FullScale can help you build a software team quickly and affordably and has the platform to help you manage that team. Visit FullScale.io to learn more. Ted, welcome to the show, man. Matt, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. I, you know, since you're a you know, founder of a company that builds a learning management system. I think we're all going to learn something today, right? I mean, that has to be. <laughs> it's it's as advertised. Yes. It, Hopefully it, I could share some some great knowledge. If anybody knows how to teach somebody something, it's got to be you. So um, to get to get us started today, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and then how you, you know, eventually become to start WorkRamp? Yeah, for sure. Maybe I'll start. Uh, I won't go all the way back to my childhood. I'll start in my uh, professional career uh, no, so pre- my pre- preschool, what, what pre- preschool is even better. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. Uh, I could go all the way back there. Might, might be a three hour podcast though, but, um, no professionally started my career out at Cisco doing sales, went to St. Clair university. Um, I have a funny story about how I just landed in sales randomly at the career fair. I won't go too far into that, but, uh, uh start at Cisco, uh, learn the ropes of selling, then I actually tried my own first startup, failed miserably. I was a, what you call a entrepreneur at that time. Uh, then, I, then I said, hey, I need to go learn how to actually build a real startup and learn from the best part of, part of this learning journey. So I joined uh, Box back in 2011 uh, under the leadership of uh, Aaron Levy, if you've heard of him, which was just a great experience. Spent five years there, learned the ins and outs of SaaS, met my co-founder there. And when I felt like I was ready, I always knew I wanted to do another startup because I love the entrepreneurial journey. Um, I, I jumped ship at the end of 2015, uh, started WorkRamp, and happy to share all the trials and tribulations and, and wins and losses we've gone through over the last uh, seven years on this uh, fun startup journey ever since. If I remember right, one of the founders of Box is actually from Kansas City. Oh, yeah. Um, Wait, which one? Do you know? Do you know the name? Is it? I don't remember. Okay. I should know this, but got but it. Yeah, there, there. I think there's a Kansas City twist there for uh, our Kansas yes. City fans. But um, so, tell us what what led you to start WorkRamp? Like, why why build a learning management system? What what was the genesis of that? For sure, and actually, and I guess maybe a- we should start with what the hell is a learning management system? <laughs> I'll start there first, um, and then I'll go into how we stumbled into this category. So. A learning management system is almost exactly what it sounds like. It's one of the core infrastructure categories in software. It's been around for 20, 30 years, and it essentially helps manage learning within an organization. So a company learns in many different ways. It might be ranging from things like security training to compliance training, 
all the way to sales training, all the way to uh, helping your customers and partners learn. And we're the under uh, underlying infrastructure to actually run all those programs. And that's the learning management system category. And this category has been around uh, on-premise all the way to now. It's obviously predominantly cloud. And I would say we're one of the leading providers of of LMS software for the mid-market and SMB category. So that's that's kind of where we sit. Well, and there's uh, and so I've actually known a few companies that are kind of in that space. And and so, for example, just so people understand other use cases of this, uh, one of them is a local company here in Kansas City that does like training for nurses, like, and the nurses have to go through this training and do testing and all this stuff, and they have like a proprietary like learning management system or whatever, and and. When I think of learning management system, I also think of like, I signed up for some dude's uh, courses on how to trade crypto, which I failed miserably at. But like, you know, I use like some kind of learning management system to go through all of the training or whatever, right? Like there's a lot of different use cases for this kind of product is kind of the point. Yep, that's exactly right. And that's more on the consumer, prosumer, yeah. prosumer lens. And we focus on B2B, but you're totally right. It's the same concept. Hopefully, you didn't deposit into FTX there. Uh, <laughs> uh, maybe stayed on Binance. But uh, uh, but uh, we we definitely do a similar thing, but at the corporate level, yeah, uh, which, so what, which in my mind, a lot easier to do. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. So what what was the genesis of of building an LMS? Like, were, yeah. were there, there were none that existed? Or, you know, how, how did you, how, how did no, you figure out your... Your niche there, was, there were 600 competitors. And so it's crazy to think, think there uh, when you're doing market analysis. But I would say our story is a little bit more like when I heard the story of Jeff Lawson at Twilio. And Jeff Lawson was looking for a startup to start. And that was similar to us, where we had two criteria in mind. Uh, me and my co-founder, Arshmund, we said, look, we want a very large category that was uh, undisrupted that we can make a difference in. And two, our other criteria for starting the startup is we want to build a great company uh, that really reflected the culture we wanted to, to have. And so for that first one was we looked at the learning management system category, again, 600 competitors, but they were all pretty bad. And the category is almost infinite from the standpoint of, hey, anyone who is working needs to learn and train for their job, right? And so we said, hey, that fits our criteria, crappy competitors, it's a huge market and we can make a difference in. And then that second criteria was that, hey, let's go be thoughtful about what's the company we like to build. Because when we came from our previous company, Box, the one thing we learned there is that people enjoyed working there, not because they had a love for file sharing, right? They loved it because it's just a great company and culture to show up at every day. And so we thought that was a big part of, hey, we want to go do this for the next couple of decades in our life. Let's go uh, start a great company around that at that first point, which is the category and the problem we want to solve. So when you were looking at the category, um, you know, you mentioned there's six, you know potentially 600 competitors or, or whatever it is. Like, I think that's a good point for people to understand because usually in most markets, there's two or three, right? You have like Slack or Teams, you have Coke or Pepsi or whatever, right? Like in a lot of different uh, verticals. And if it's highly fragmented where nobody has more than 1% of the market share or 5% of the market share, there is potential for somebody to come in and maybe do it better than everybody else. And that, that was the opportunity that you were keen on. Yeah, that's totally right. And we actually wanted to use, um, we want to use uh, the resources we had to our competitive advantage. If you, uh, the Tristan Walker, 
um, uh, who uh, I forgot his company name. He did he did uh, the consumer product goods company I sold to uh, P and G, but um, he gave this really good example of like, hey, when you're starting a startup, do things that you have a competitive advantage on. And what we had a competitive advantage on is we thought, hey, we could raise venture capital. Most of those 600 competitors did not raise venture capital, and we could at the time hire really good Silicon Valley uh, uh, talent. And then lastly, Arsh and I knew of SaaS really well because we just came from Box, right? And so we said, you know what? Looking at those 600 competitors, most of them were kind of, mom, I would call them mom and pop SaaS companies, legacy providers doing it as a lifestyle business. Very few of them had actually raised venture capital and said, hey, I could go build a high growth company around this. And very few of them were actually based in Silicon Valley. And so we said, hey, let's take those competitive differentiators package them up and let let that be a differentiator into launching the market. And it took some time. But once we did that and we got a bunch of marquee customers on board, then it started to snowball into a successful company. So why did you think early on that you'd be able to raise VC money where most, you know, your competition hadn't? Like what what gave you that? Yeah. You know, it's funny that there's a nice nuance that even though I did say, hey, I thought we could raise it. So we were overconfident we could raise it heading into <laughs> heading into starting the company. We're like, oh yeah, we're 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 in Silicon Valley. We came from Box. We think we're we're awesome, right? And right. what was what was really funny is it was a sobering experience when we actually went on the fundraising trail to start. We got so many no's, like we got dozens and dozens of no's um, out of the gate, and we literally stopped fundraising because I was like, I don't think I could get this done. And uh, so actually our initial hypothesis was wrong, uh, but we then luckily get into Y Combinator, you know, the Harvard right. of, of startup accelerators. And no joke, once we, once people heard we got in, like the day after we got in, all those investors that were saying no came back kind of banging at the door saying, hey, how can we invest? It's kind of funny yeah. how, how, how much air now, cover a program like that can get. Yeah. Now the now the herd is feels like it's safe all of a sudden, you know that. Yes. So you didn't even have to finish Y Combinator. It's like just as soon as you no, even just like started, literally got in. We got we got cold called. Like we had a, a really well known investor, um, Semel Shaw from Haystack, just cold called our and he's and he's known for just kind of finding startups, okay. um, uh, uh, almost out of thin air. And he's and he has a great track record. Like he did Figma uh, as an as an example recently. He did uh, Hopin and a few others. Um, but he basically, uh, cold called us on our support line. Like, Hey, I heard you got into YC. Tell me more about this. And he's one of our earliest investors. So when, before you joined YC, did you guys already have the product, at, uh, in the market and, and had customers and all that kind of stuff? Or like, where were you in that, in the stage? Yeah, for sure. I'll rewind back a little bit. So we started WorkRamp in, uh, late 2015 as I remember the date, September 22nd is when we, uh, incorporated and uh, we essentially spent a good six months getting our first few reference clients. I would call it about five to 10 customers using the platform. When I talked about not being able to raise, that was about three months in. We had a couple clients oh, okay. about three months in. I was like, hey, I think I could go raise on this. I think we were about 50K ARR at the time. And that's when I went to pound the pavement and just no luck. And um, uh, then we applied to YC that spring and ended up getting in into YC that spring. And the, the class started, I think, in the beginning of June. And uh, once we got in, we were, we were roughly, I think, about 70, 80K ARR, grew a little bit, 
And then uh, we're kind of off to the races in terms of fundraising, going through YC and really getting into the harder part of our starter journey, startup journey. But we were able to take that momentum with YC and use it to raise our uh, our first seed round of uh, $2.2 million. So how hard was it to get into YC? Because I would think for the same reason that all the investors said no, YC would potentially say no on even letting you in, right? So how, how was yeah. the journey of actually like getting into Y Combinator? Oh man, that's such a great story. So we, I was kind of stubborn about YC. You know, I was a little bit older at the time. I, uh, I was 31. Now, now I'm uh, in, in my late 30s. And um, I, I told my co-founder, Arsh, I was like, ah, I just feel like we're too old. I have a kid. Like these are all young 20-somethings. Like it's probably not for us. And he's like, you know what, Ted, let's just apply. So like the night before the, um, the applications were due, and I'd been rejected from YC maybe two or three times earlier in my life. I can't, I can't even keep count. And um, so I was like, ah, it's just not even worth it. So he talks me into submitting an application. He's like, I'll write it. So he writes it himself. It's probably a pro tip. Have the have the CTO write it because the CEO adds too much fluff. Yeah. And so he writes the application. <laughs> and the funny part of the story was we record uh, the video, the uh, uh, mandatory video you have to record. It's a one minute YouTube video you have to record. And when we were recording, we we're like, ah, oh, this just doesn't seem like cool enough or enough hype. And LMS sounds really boring. And so we're like, you know what? Let's just say we have AI in the platform. And so, <laughs> oh, no. so we knew nothing about AI. We're like, you know what? Let's just toss in AI. And so we were like, hey, we're the first AI-based oh, LMS on the market. So we make it all up. Uh, we get get the we get the interview. And so my co-founder is freaking out. I was like, oh crap, they're going to ask me about AI. So he spends <laughs> like two weeks building a prototype night and day. And he actually has a working prototype that feels like AI and he gets it working and we get into the, to the actual interview. They didn't ask us anything about AI. They didn't even ask us to demo it. So my co-founder is tired and like, like could barely uh, wow. stay awake, but we ended up nailing the interview and, and getting in. So that was, that was a fun story. Uh, getting so, in was totally unexpected. So does the product have any kind of AI in it today? Like leftover from, from that? <laughs> You know, it's funny now with ChatGPT, we might need to put that in there, but I've had a few uh, vendors actually pitch us on uh, putting in ChatGPT into it, but um, we have we, we don't have like any official AI, but I do see it. I mean, uh, to be honest, I do see it uh, coming down the pike in two to three years actually into the product. I think there's a lot of cool use cases, mostly because our, our, our platform is a heavy content creation platform too. So there's some really neat stuff you could do. But at that time in 2016, uh, uh, open AI was not really, uh, I don't even know if they're around yeah. at that time. So, so you mentioned the use cases. So we, we've, we've talked, you know, about the learning management system and stuff like that, but I think it'd be great to hear, hear a little more detail on, you know, a case study of like one of your customers that uses the product and how they use it, how it benefits them just so people have a better idea of, you know, who your target customer is and stuff. Yeah, for sure. So I'll, I'll talk through a couple case studies. One, let's talk on the on the customer education side. So on the customer education side, so this is like a SaaS company uh, training their own customers. We have a customer called Quantum Metric. Quantum Metric um, has the ability to, in their, in their product, if you look at a lot of those dropdowns, you would have like a help site. You would have your area for you to s- submit support tickets. And then you have an academy or a university. When you click into that, the user expects to learn more about Quantum Metric. When they click into that, they actually get uh, landed onto a hosted page, basically a white label page, 
on uh, Quantum Metric University, and they could do deep dive tutorial certifications when they get certified. They could publish it to LinkedIn, and they could basically build this viral loop around education around their product. And so that's a really cool use case on the, the customer enablement side uh, where you can actually just enable your customers to um, uh, uh, be more proficient in your products and then also um, uh, help save them from things like churn or low engagement as well. But And the, and the key to that is Quantum Metrics had to create all that content. They had to create that certification program. They still had to create all that, right? Like you're just providing the technology to enable the delivery of the content. You guys don't create the content, right? Uh, actually, we actually have the, the secret sauce of our platform. And this is when you talk about that startup journey in the differentiators with um, the, the 600 competitors is most of them uh, you would think are like that. It's like, hey, you just import the content like a video you made or or what we call a SCORM file in the education industry is a prepackaged um, kind of learning uh, artifact. Okay. What we did different is we actually allow customers to create content on our platform. So think of a Google Docs of training content. So our customers can really easily spin up learning content. So we have the video editing capabilities. We have the ability to have open text. You can have flip cards, test questions. So we have a whole WYSIWYG okay. editor so that someone who has no idea how to create training content can actually come into the platform, never be classically trained, and go knock out a course for a customer or an internal stakeholder. So a lot of the competitive products aren't are not really document editors as well. They're you know they're not really designed for content creation. They're just meant to host the content. Yeah, not as much. And so we could do both. We could host content. Yeah. But our secret sauce is also creating content. And like a pro tip, and this is kind of like when you do your your pitches with venture capitalists, what's great is it cr- uh, creates great lock in in exchange for the value you give to right. clients. And so. And so venture capitalists will always ask, hey, what, why would a, um, uh, a customer not jump from your platform to another? Well, it's because they create a lot of native content on the platform. And that's the give and take. It's like, hey, they can quickly create content. But yes, it's going to be native on the platform itself, which also uh, helps reduce things like switching costs. Yeah. Well, um, I want to talk more about your journey after Y Combinator. But before we do that, I do want to remind everybody that finding expert software developers doesn't have to be difficult especially when you visit fullscale.io where you can build a software team quickly and affordably use the full scale platform to define your technical needs and then see what developers are available to join your team visit fullscale.io to learn more so after y combinator i'm going to guess you guys were able to raise some money um, but were you able to really ramp up sales or did you guys hit you know hit hit a wall there somewhere that was you know tough to figure out from a growth strat- growth perspective yeah, we, we totally hit that wall. Um, Paul Graham talks about the, I think he originated the, the concept, the, the startup trough of disillusionment. And uh, if you visualize a, a graph, it's it, imagine exponential up and to the right, mini growth when you start in excitement, when you start your startup. And then right after you uh, launch or get that TechCrunch article, you kind of fall off a cliff and then you linearly grow your startup after the fact. And that's exactly what happened to us. We we graduated YC. I think we were we were listed as like a top ten company to watch on TechCrunch. Had a nice launch, raised that two point two I talked about earlier from some world world renowned investors like Alexis Ohanian, Joe Montana, Gary Tan, um, and and a few others. And uh, Susa Ventures as an example. And then 
And then what happened was we just like lost the momentum. We hit every challenge you could think of. We weren't growing fast enough. Uh, we didn't really have go-to-market fit, which we could talk about in a little bit. Um, we had um, we had great team members, but also we had made some hiring decisions on and people joined us who probably weren't ready for the startup journey yet. So we had those challenges. We didn't really have a culture defined. So just pretty much every mistake you could hit in the book, which I call it the wandering de the desert years, back half of 2016, all of 2017, first half of 2018, very challenging times, churned through uh, employees, churned through uh, customers. It was a tough time. And that was really mentally taxing on us. Probably could have almost killed the company if we, we hadn't uh, persevered uh, mentally during that time. And so you don't think any of that had to do with the product. It was more your go-to-market strategy? I think it was the combination of the two. I think one kind of begets the other. It's like, we just weren't growing. I think that's the ultimate thing was like, we just weren't growing at the expectations of a, of a venture-backed company, yeah. right? And so then that causes a lot of discontent with the team, with, with how you operate together, how you even decide on building things. And so it ultimately stemmed from low growth. Like it, It's just like, hey, if the growth is not there on the startup journey, that's almost the number one thing in the early days, right? If the growth isn't there, it will pretty much squash anything else you're doing. Like you have a great team, but the growth isn't there. Uh, it's going to make everything really hard. And that, that's essentially that that trough of disillusionment, just the growth wasn't there. So what did you guys do to, to get that growth going? What what was the thing you had to figure out? Yeah, that was really what I call the journey to go to market fit. And what was mm -hmm. interesting was we were in an existing space. So we, we didn't do anything like category creation. Our space was well-defined, the LMS category. You could literally sign up to a competitor product and know exactly what you need to build and how to improve on it. So that was never the issue. We were building the product in the right way, but we didn't know who to sell to. Like in one given day, I was selling to a trucking company in Chicago. I was then selling to a nursing company in New Hampshire. I was then selling to a biking company in Ecuador. And then on the same day, I was doing on-site at Square uh, to selling to their sales team, right? And so it was just this hodgepodge of customers and personas and use cases. And it made it really difficult for us to hone our pitch or right. even know what features to specifically focus on over time. And so it took us that, that time between mid-2016 and, and mid-2018 to really figure out what's the persona we should sell to. And we looked at the data, we looked at the anecdotal conversations we were having, and we said, you know what? The way to do this is we got to sell to a specific target under 250 or 300 employees and let's sell to sales teams and let's sell to tech based in SF. So we got really specific mm -hmm. and there was a way that we could actually land um, um, into accounts and then grow our brand over time. And that was the, the, the secret sauce was getting to actual a specific niche of customers to then get momentum to then expand to our long-term platform vision. Well, and so th this is a common problem that a lot of start startups have. And my one of my previous companies had the same problem. It's like when you're trying to sell to everybody, you're almost selling to nobody, right? It's hard to get momentum in any particular area. And so for you guys, was it outbound sales that you were trying to do and trying to, to really focus the outbound sales on that criteria where before you were doing outbound sales, but kind of just all over the place or, or were you guys doing more inbound sales? Like what was your like actual like sales process look like? 
Yeah, for sure. And I was doing a mix of both. But what was interesting was that the outbound was really where the go to market fit did come from. So okay. what was happening in those early days, we would do a mix of outbound hard. It was just it was just me really. And I would go on LinkedIn. I call them LinkedIn days. And I would just scour LinkedIn in my network. And what was great about our category, you're, you're kind of just one intro away from the buyer. And it's usually a mid-level to lower level buyer. So it's not a big ask. You could go ask a friend who worked, who you worked with previously, like, hey, can you intro me to your sales enablement uh, leader? And they're like, yeah, sure. That's an easy, an easy intro. So that was a lot of our outbound motion. I would say the majority of our initial customers were from there. But when we talk about some of the inbound, we invest a lot in what I call uh, empty calories. We were spending money on paid uh, acquisition, like Captera, if you've heard of that, mm -hmm. yep. um, a little bit of uh, SEM as well. And we were getting some of this inbound, like I talked about, like that nursing home, that trucking company, those were all inbound off of these empty calories. And these empty calories would really spin your wheels or get you confused about your go-to-market fit because they were coming inbound. But in reality, you were basically hacking the system and hijacking their clicks. Um, and they're kind of landing at the wrong spot, ultimately, right? Uh, although you don't want to admit it. And so over time, we basically shed those empty calories did a heavy focus on outbound for that first, let's call it uh, 30 to 50 customers. And then once we got that rolling, then we came back and started investing in more inbound motions. But we built the back of the company off of outbound. And then eventually we built the back of the company off a really great outbound team, uh, BDRs. Okay, very cool. So I think you, you mentioned before we started recording that you know, the, the kind of zero to one was kind of a slow, a slow process. And then the, the one past that kind of took off a, a rocket. You want to tell us a little more about that? Yeah, for sure. And then I always tell this to entrepreneurs like, Hey, don't give up too early. Right. Cause you might be right on the cusp. And again, took us about three years to get to that first million of error, three hard years that I just described. Uh, but then only a couple quarters uh, to, to get our next million and then uh, I think it's about uh, a year and a half or two years after that to get to 10 million, right? And so it was a really fast uh, uptick uh, to go from one to 10. And the, the big difference was, hey, once we hit that go-to-market fit, everything started to click, right? Once it starts clicking, then the investors notice. And then, for example, when we got to million ARR, we were then able to raise our A round from our Series A round of 8 million from Bow Capital. Then we took that and parlayed that into the business and hired our executive team and started to invest more in the product. And that led to our B round, which allowed us to raise 17 million from Overs Ventures. And so it was a nice flywheel effect once you start getting that momentum, right? And so I could talk more about the, the specific tactics of that momentum from one to 10. I think the big part to notice of that journey is a lot like companies like UiPath or Build.com. Those early years can be hard. Doesn't mean like, hey, it, it, like it's it's all doom and gloom. It might just be it's a slow burn to actually get to good product market fit or go to market fit, and don't give up before that, and then you can actually take off to the races afterwards. Well, and I, something I wanted to ask you about is you talked about in the early days you struggled to you know getting to that first million, and, and that first three years were were kind of stressful because growth wasn't hitting the expectations that that everybody kind of had. Right. But do you feel like that those expectations were, 
were a lot higher than they should have been or mm. would have been differently if you had been like a bootstrapped company. Like if you guys were bootstrapped, everybody would have been perfectly happy and and that extra stress just wouldn't have been there? Or do you do you feel like the team would have still been like highly disappointed by the growth? That's a great question, actually. I haven't been asked that maybe ever or in a long time. I mean, ba- basically, it's like the, the the VC part of it adds so much extra pressure that... Yeah that if you hadn't raised the VC, like maybe you guys would have been super happy with the growth that you had and, and the success that you had, but it's like the VC part of it kind of just really, you know, added the multiple layers of, of stress on top. Yeah. You know, it's, I think there's two ways to answer that question. The first as a founder, I was just talking to this founder uh, yesterday. Um, he had some really good advice as, as picking his brain on, on his, his new company. And he said, he said, Ted, you need to know in your heart of hearts, like, what do you want out of the company you're building? And it, it depends on every, every person, right? And also stage of life. Like, hey, if I said, hey, I want to build a company that generates a lot of cash and have that uh, and, and actually grow my wealth through the, through the salary I take from the company, that's a much different version to a, a person who says, hey, I want to go ring the bell Right. on NASDAQ and this has to be a venture back company, right? And and so when we started the company, and even to this day, my my motivation is really, if I had to sum it up, to be a successful entrepreneur. Um, and and when I say in in those terms for me, it means hey, ringing the bell um, uh, for for WorkRamp, right? It is hey, taking this to IPO. And so again, it's a it's a lofty goal, but it's it's the goal that I've set. And so with that, that then forces you or or to your audience, this forces you to think through, hey, what are those pressure points and be very honest with yourself of how you want to build a business. And so what was really good is those outside factors adding stress actually forced us to work harder, work smarter, hire the right people look to raise venture capital, which was really stressful in, in most of those scenarios. And so what I what I like to say is that, hey, if you choose how you want to run your startup, then two, use those pressures to accelerate your momentum forward, right? And even, even to this day, it's like, hey, we've now raised Series C. Investors expect you to go public at some point or at least have a big enough outcome. Right. And so that adds pressure on how you run the company. You will run it in a different way compared to let's call it a bootstrap startup right now too. So um, yeah, great question though. Well, so I, when, when we started the conversation, you, you said that one of your advantages that you guys thought you had was that you were in Silicon Valley. So fast forward several years mm-hmm. now, curious, what, what do you, what do you think about that now? Is, is being in oh, Silicon dang, Valley yeah. still a <laughs> advantage or, I mean, it looks like you're recording the podcast day. I know nobody can see it, but I can see it like maybe from your house. I mean, have you guys went remote? Like it's a company now remote and not really totally. in Silicon Valley anymore. Or just kind of curious. That's exactly right. So, so I'm personally in Silicon Valley still, I'm in Redwood city and we did move a hundred percent remote um, actually recently in during, during COVID, we were right. technically hybrid remote, still had our office and a great office in SF, but we just got rid of it and we're officially a hundred percent remote now. And now I'd almost frame it as, as I, I've changed my mindset of, of, Hey, you can, 
you can hire from anywhere now and you can run remotely or company is is fully remote, but mostly in the US. I would call it, I think it's 95% in US and Canada. Mm-hmm. And But the difference though is we still have a Silicon Valley ethos and mindset to growth and building the company. And so okay. um, not, not to say, hey, everyone we're hiring is just around California because we have people everywhere, but it's more around, hey, we are using the best practices from Silicon Valley venture companies and applying them into the company itself and how we operate. But the people can be from anywhere, right? We have, we've done a great job hiring across the country, as an example, top tier engineering talent. Um, I, I think um, uh, uh, you, you hire talent from all over the world and we'll probably do that eventually. Um, but um, uh, right now we've just done a really good job hiring from anywhere, uh, but then having that ethos uh, uh, from our original Silicon Valley roots. Well, and, and as a follow-on question to that, you mentioned like being able to hire Silicon Valley engineers. And as a software developer myself from Kansas City, I would never in a million years want to hire from a software developer from Silicon Valley because they want to get paid <laughs> like twice as much money, which to me, yes. I can't fathom. So I'm curious if, you're, if your opinion of that part of it has changed too over the years. Yeah, that's that's actually interesting. I think the the world will change is changing even more before our eyes with uh, obviously the the economic downturn. Um, I would say our pay philosophy has been let's be in the seventy five percentile of tech companies and keep an eye on that. And but it doesn't really matter the location. So we actually, for example, have equal pay regardless of location right now. Okay. We just want to be in that 75th percentile of comparable, let's call it series C companies. And we also try to compensate well on equity too. Okay. And so you bring up a good point, but that might evolve in the future, right? That's historically what we were doing over the last two to three years. So we can hire someone in Kansas City at Silicon Valley rates, right? But we we did find a lot of the value in in those hires. I could see in the future where uh, even companies like us get more creative, maybe supplement with an offshore team uh, mm-hmm. or maybe hire more internationally at a, a reduced rate. I think everything's on the table now as all of these tech companies, including us, are reevaluating their expenses, their their cost structure, their R&D structure. Um, I think it's all on the table. But historically, that was really our philosophy. What? Well, I've... I've just always found it to be an interesting conversation as, you know, a CTO and a business owner. And because I always felt like if I was hiring developers in, in Silicon Valley, of course, they're like 40 to 50% more. They're not twice as much. They're like 40 to 50% more. But I also felt like at best I'm hiring the people that are the leftovers from like Google and Facebook and Apple and all these places. And, the, you know, and it's hard to be the cool company to work for there. Like, you know, you're not the cool company where if you come to Kansas City, you can be the cool company. Like WorkRamp <laughs> could be the cool company and you can stand out from the crowd, right? Yes. Versus in Silicon Valley, that's probably impossible, right? You're never going to be the cool company because there's always going to be Twitter and Facebook and Apple and Uber and all these different people. Yeah, and that's the one thing I learned early on when I talked about um, how we how we rotated through people in the early days. And it's um, not to their fault at all. It's actually more around... Uh, if we're talking about market fit, there's a, there is an employee market fit, right? And right. one big thing we learned in our hiring journey is make sure people opt in. So actually we don't sell people hard in our recruiting process. We need people who are like, 
hey, I do not want to go to Google. Yeah. I want to go to this early stage startup because that's where I fit in. That's what I want to try. And that was a big learning is, hey, you're probably not chasing after the fang leftovers. You're chasing uh, after people who maybe uh, just was the top engineer at another YC company that flatlined. And now they need another great YC company to join. That's a perfect engine. Like one of our top right. engineers is like that. Um, where we, it was one of the top engineers from another YC company um, who we said, hey, let's get you a new home. And he's been amazing here at, at WorkRam. I actually kind of find it funny to look at the resumes of developers that worked at the Fang companies, which is like Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google, or whatever is what that stands for. for people who don't know, I didn't even know what that stood for until a few months ago. But uh, it's funny to look at their, their like what they did at, at Google and they'll be like, I made this one thing 10% faster and I added this one button at Facebook newsfeed or some crap like that. And it's like, that's all they did in like one year. <laughs> it was like totally, but they probably got paid half a million dollars oh, yeah. for that button. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, and to that point though, like I would much rather actually go work at work ramp and like build something, like actually create something, not add the like one little feature to the Facebook newsfeed or whatever, you know? Yep. So yeah, and that's the, I that's would the value work. prop in our stage. Yep. Absolutely. I'd much rather work for you guys. You guys would be way cooler in my, in my book, but there's a lot of developers that do get attracted to the Fang thing. Well, um, if you do need to hire software engineers, testers, or leaders, FullScale can help. We have the people on the platform to help you build and manage a team of experts. When you visit FullScale.io, all you need to do is answer a few questions and let our platform reach uh, match you with our fully vetted, highly experienced developers at FullScale. We specialize in building long te long-term teams that work only for you. You can learn more at FullScale.io. Well, this has been a, a great conversation, and um, you know it's always cool to talk to people who have been through Y Combinator and the whole VC gamut, Silicon Valley gamut. Like it's a definitely different, totally different than the you know the Kansas City vibe. <laughs> totally for for better or for worse. <laughs> it's just different, you know, like. My first company, I bootstrapped the entire way to to doing thirty five million a year in revenue as a SaaS company. Wow, amazing! Never, never raised a single dollar of of investor or of institutional funding. You know, it, we 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 financed it with Visa and Mastercard. You know, oh, that is awesome. <laughs> so you know, there there are different paths, right? But that's what um, Silicon Valley is famous for, as you said, the the ethos of that that path. And so, as as we round up the show today, I'm I'm curious if you have any you know, final like thoughts, uh, tips, you know, words of wisdom for other entrepreneurs out there. Yeah. To your last comment, I'll actually just close with, with what you just said is in, in given we care so much or I care so much about learning is always learn from others on the different types of journeys you can take as an entrepreneur. So like even, even yesterday, I just reached out to that, to that random founder who actually took a slightly different journey. He was on this kind of fast VC path and then went bootstrapped and he's now back on the VC path is learn from others what they've done and try to get a, a myriad of experiences. People who are like yourself, who have bootstrapped all the way to people who are running unicorns all the way to public uh, right. founder, public CEO founders, right? And get all those perspectives because you don't know where life's going to take you and use that to uh, basically influence the decisions you make. And so um, I think all the journeys are great and they're all different. And the key is don't keep the blinders on. Always ask and learn from others through this journey because you will pick up tidbits that you can apply and actually know that, hey, I could fall back in this route or maybe I should push harder and go for this other route. Great, great way to continue to improve as an entrepreneur. That's a great Great tip. And, and I 
so so many entrepreneurs, we don't know what we don't know. I mean, to me, that's the bottom line. We just we don't even know what we don't know. And having mentors and advisors is is so valuable. So totally. Well, once again, this was Ted Blosser from WorkRamp. Um, their website is workramp.com. Um, for those who are listening, please also you can join our uh, Facebook group, uh, Start a Puzzle Chat. You can find us on Facebook. It's a great group. Um, you can also find me on TikTok and Instagram and all these places. It's Matt Watson KC uh, or on LinkedIn. So, um, Ted, thank you so much for, for being on the show today. Matt, thanks for having me. Excited uh, that we could do this finally. All right. Thank you, sir. Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time.